Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz. This is the Been Awake Podcast for better sense-making. If you are within the sound of my voice and you haven't visited beenawake.com and subscribed with your email address, I need you to follow me today. Well, this is coming out a little later than I wanted. Not to worry, though. We've got a great week of content to go over today at beenawake.com. Recording this on a Saturday. Tried to live stream. Apparently, I can't. I have to wait 24 hours. So that might uh, that might start mm, happening more often than not. So if you didn't hear, if you didn't listen to last week's show, first off, shame on you. You absolutely should have. But I did make mention of the fact that Joe Biden gave not a State of the Union address, just uh, just an address to Congress. I don't know. It's always weird, the names that they choose for things like this. And so I decided to cover that for Monday's post over at beenawake.com. And it says our, and the headline reads, our president sounds pretty good at uh, 1.5 times the speed. And don't believe me, just listen to this. This is at the beginning of the speech. It's going to help our kids and our businesses succeed in the 21st century economy. And I'm asking the vice president to lead this effort, if you would, because I know we'll get done. Great jobs building a modern power grid. Our grids are vulnerable to storms, hacks, catastrophic failures with tragic results, as we saw in Texas and elsewhere during the winter storms. The American Jobs Plan will create jobs that lay thousands of miles of transmission lines needed to build a resilient and fully clean grid. We can do that. So that's Look, at, now let's listen to what he actually sounded like. American Jobs Plan will help millions of people get back to their jobs and back to their careers. Two million women have dropped out of the workforce during this pandemic. Two million. And too often because they couldn't get the care they needed. We're going to speed it back up. To care for their child or care for an elderly parent who needs help. 800,000 families are on a Medicare waiting list. Right I mean, it's, this isn't a definitive thing, right? I'm just kind of, it was just an interesting thing because I was, um, it's like, well, should I listen to it? I should really listen to the whole thing so I can actually feel like I can comment on it in full. So, you know, I made sure to put it on and I put it on at 1.5 the speed so it would go a little faster. And about 20 minutes in, I thought to myself, you know, this doesn't actually sound half bad. He's keeping, he's keeping a good tempo. And that's when I remembered I had sped up the video. Now, again, this isn't, this isn't like, this isn't a nail in the coffin or anything not to be so glib about his age, but it's, um, well, frankly, as I wrote in the piece, I think in, as a president, Joe Biden is like something of a clip show. Other than his abysmal catchphrase of no malarkey, I'm not sure what original contribution he brought into the milieu of his campaign. If you're not familiar a clip show is an episode of a TV show that simply combines together clips of previously aired episodes, usually when the characters are remembering some of the wild, zany things that have happened to them over the course of you know, the seasons. 
As you might imagine, you don't see clip shows in earlier seasons of a show. It's saved for later on when the writers run out of original storylines, but still need to fill however many episodes there are in a season. That's how I feel after listening to Biden at his state of at his not State of the Union address. There is um I find myself in this perspective constantly where I look and I watch these rituals that I have grown up with as, as most Americans would have, right? The state of the union address, these presidential debates. And I have been struck by the, how much my perception of these things have changed. And, you know, if you want to come on the show and tell me what I'm wrong about, I'm more than happy to host you. But I've noticed how much my perspective has shifted over eight years. My first real presidential cycle was 2012. I was in high school when Barack Obama was elected in 2008. So I just, I've, I've, I'm struck at the fact, and maybe you feel the same way, but how in just the eight short years, how much has changed about my perception of the political process and yet how little it has changed for the broader population. And, or at the very least, enough of the population that wants to vote for somebody like Joe Biden, believe somebody like Kamala Harris is some sort of change agent and somebody who's going to make a difference in things, and who sits and watches in a dress like this and believes, frankly, believes the types of claims that are raised by the president and, and specifically in the ways in which he claims it. For example, there's one point, and I don't think it's one of the quotes that I pulled out, but there's a one point where he talks about, and he's making a, he's making a play on this right now. I've seen him do it in other press conferences, but he's making a play for this right now where he's talking about deficit spending and how he doesn't want to engage in deficit spending. And what I wonder when I hear things like that is, who believes him? If you didn't listen to last week's episode, I, I talked about one of the ways in which propaganda works. And next week, I'm going to have another piece on how to spot and look for propaganda uh, that you should definitely keep an eye out for. Because for me, you know, the, the original source material that I'm going to put forward is life-changing. Truly, 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 it's, 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 it's perception-altering. And that's why you need to be subscribed, by the way, at pinawake.com with your email addresses so you don't miss that article and then you get the reinforcement here on the show. So, you know, I, then I write a little bit here about, you know, how he gave an address to Congress and I wasn't too interested, but I did listen for the sake of content. There's a few distinct sections of the speech that we're going to get into, and you can find the entire transcript linked at binawake.com. So why something like this matters is not in the specifics of what is said, but in the overall package and, the, and then specific messaging points that exist within it, right? So an individual claim should not be taken for granted or, on fa or at face value. However, a the entire tone 
of the speech needs to be taken into account and you need to understand it for what it is, which is, you know, analogous to a piece of art if you want it, but, but of course not nearly as beautiful. So uh, one of the quotes, liar, liar, and I called this segment liar, liar, house on fire. Uh, 100 days ago, America's house was on fire. This is, this is quoting from Joe Biden's speech. We had to act. And thanks to the extraordinary leadership of Speaker Pelosi, uh, Majority Leader Schumer, and the overwhelming support of the American people, Democrats, independents, and Republicans, we did act. Today, we passed the American Rescue Plan one of the most consequential rescue plans in American history. We're already seeing the results. Applause break. We're already seeing the results. After I promised we'd get 100 million COVID-19 vaccine shots into people's arms in 100 days, we will have provided over 220 million COVID shots within those 100 days. It does not surprise me that the Biden administration beat the metrics that they set out. The United States is one of the most sophisticated. This is obviously my analysis. The United States is one of the most sophisticated supply chains in the world. And it only makes sense that we would get the most vaccines out to the most number of people. What has changed is the press is now working for the administration instead of against it. What do I mean by this? Well, it's very simple. If you remember back into January and December and, you know, in the aftermath of the election, everything was about how the vaccine rollout was too small, was too slow, was too, you know, wasn't, wasn't getting done fast enough. Whereas now the story is about how in countries like India, it's not fast enough and it's not being deployed as quickly as it could be. The entire narrative shifted underneath your nose. And unless you were listening to a show like this, you wouldn't even remember the fact that this occurred. These are the types of things, it's almost like tides in an ocean. Not that I'm some particular nautical expert on how tides operate, but my basic understanding is that you, know, you can have currents that move in different directions at different parts of the ocean. And, so the, and those currents kind of change based off the position of the earth relative to the moon, or that particular part of the ocean relevant, relative to the moon would probably be the better point to say. These things happen a lot. I remember in the book 1984, one particular, ver one particular um, line that has always struck with me, stuck with me, excuse me. It was like early on where, you know, he notices the propaganda shifting overnight. He notices the messaging going from we're at war with the West to we're at war with the East. I've, I've, I've pulled this once before and I probably should pull it again because it's really worth meditating on and considering the fact that this exists within the larger media structure that we have. On this show, as far back as October, I was saying that the United States was going to be one of the best as far as getting the uh, vaccines out there and that we didn't need the military's Operation Warp Speed to get it done. Right? That's just what the government is going to do is have the military pass out vaccines. We didn't need that because we have one of the best supply chains in the world. We have some of the heaviest and densest infrastructure in the world and complexity to that infrastructure. That means you can get you know, pretty much anything you want anywhere. With, with few exception, right? Rural areas, so on and so forth. But with, the, but with the corporations that operate within the United States, it has always been likely 
that provided you can manufacture enough of a given medicine, it is very easy to disseminate. It's only in times of you know crisis, like we saw last year, where we started to see interruptions in the international supply chain occur. And we're seeing those today, by the way. And, and we're seeing those, in, and, and some of it is due to a labor shortage, and some of it is due to other factors. But we're, we're witnessing more interruptions in the supply chain than I think, than certainly we've had in, in my lifetime. So again, it doesn't surprise me that, they've, that we've given the most vaccines. And that's a great thing. There's nothing wrong with people wanting to take a vaccine to protect themselves from a disease. Right. The implication of making it mandatory is where we have to walk with very, very careful steps. And the amount of people who are refusing to address that demonstrates the degree to which more of this is based on the theater of a speech like this, like this addressed to Congress than it is on true science and true policy. So let's talk about another, let's talk about a dose of hope. This is just, so we're going to go through some quotes here from the piece, and I'm just going to offer my comments on them. So remember when I said that Joe Biden was kind of like a clip show president, Um, you know, for example, with these, with these million dollar, with these hundred million, 220 million vaccines within a hundred days, that's exactly what Trump was saying at the end of his presidency, wasn't it? That we're going to vaccinate the most people. The most people that we can, we're going to get the vaccine out there. It's coming fast. It's going to be strong. We've worked with all these places to get it out there quickly. You see? And he has another quote in the piece at a mass vaccination center in Glendale, Arizona. I asked a nurse, I said, what's it like? She looked at me and said, it's like every shot is giving a dose of hope. That was the phrase, a dose of hope. This is a brilliant framing technique. Remember how I said he's like a clip show? In addition to the obvious call out to to FDR with mentions of like 100 days, right? Because this was a big part of FDR's uh, presidency and is a very big part of the myth, um, not even, yeah, of the myth of the fundamental story that the cult of American democracy portrays is that the, is that the president's first 100 days mean something, mean something very important, almost spiritual, if you will. In multiple times in the speech, he talked about the 100 days, and he also made analogies to once-in-a-generation spending programs. Here we have a very, with this this specific instance of the vaccine, we have a very useful repurposing of the Obama administration's hope and change message. I, of course, recognize that for many people, the vaccine is an apparent road to normalcy. What I regret to inform you is that it won't be enough. Now, in another part of the speech, he said the International Monetary Fund is now estimating that our economy will grow at a rate of more than 6% this year. That will be the fastest pace of economic growth in this country in nearly four decades. The America is moving, moving forward, but we can't stop now. We're in a competition with China and other countries to win the 21st century. We're at a great inflection point of history. Again, doesn't this just seem like somebody who's playing the hits? It's like some old band that's just going to play the same five songs that everybody wants to hear by them. There's nothing original in this. 6% growth hasn't, like he said, in 40 years. Do you really look out into the world, into the American economy, and do you see 6% growth out there? Given the current economic and monetary structure we live under? 
because I certainly don't. One thing that Scott Adams said recently, and I'd highly recommend his morning live streams, that is absolutely the case, is that in order to govern, Biden would have to take on policy positions of the Trump administration. Now, on the fiscal or monetary side of things, the cash machine is going burr. The next few segments of the speech are all about the money he would spend given the chance. It's interesting how your, humble's author's, how your humble author's perspective has changed as it relates to government spending. While on principle, I am against it. Practically speaking, you have to realize what you can do in the aftermath. There are current and continuing labor shortages, as I've spoken about already. Um, and this is going to cause more companies to invest in automation. If you're waiting for Joe Biden to fix your problems, you'll be one of the people happy to take your UPI and eat your SOMA. So I'm kind of realizing that paragraph might not have been super clear because each of these are kind of just, you know, responses to specific points within the speech. So how my perspective has changed as it relates to government spending. So I'm not a big fan of the government spending money, right? Certainly not your money, certainly not my money. I'm not really a fan of the fact of how much they take from people, nor the things that they spend the money on. You understand? But my perspective on this has changed. It really has. And it's, and it's not from a, um, it's where principle meets application, right? So I'm, so, and, and there's a very easy way of, of putting this, right? So I have never been somebody who would shame an individual for being on food stamps or for taking other forms of government welfare. I think when you expand out to a population level, if we are going to have a policy discussion on how things should be put into place, I think very obvious, I think it's very obvious that these sorts of programs don't set out to do what they are intended to do. And in fact, they have a very negative effect on the overall population and on the people who engage in it. So somebody who lives their life on welfare isn't really interested in moving beyond that. And in some cases, you know, and we have this concept of the welfare cliff. And in many cases, they're unable to move beyond it. Oh, but, but, you know, something like 70% of the people who get on food stamps at one point in their life will, you know, will, will move off of it. That's entirely true. And it's also entirely true that the bottom 10% of a, of a, uh, of the uh, economic ladder will be at the top 10% of the economic ladder, at least once in their life. Right. It's the video camera versus the picture versus the still picture. That's what we're talking about here. And even within that video, there is a segment of people who are born, live, and die on program, using programs like food stamps, like other forms of government welfare. And again, my point here isn't to shame those people at a, at a policy discussion, right? Um, there's maybe some social shame that should be put into some of these situations, but that is for other people to decide. Um, and certainly, <laughs> if I had people in my life who were living on the government dole like that, I would, I would have words to say with them. But at a population level, I can completely understand why people would do that. I can completely understand why a single mother would take advantage of the systems that are available to her to make sure that she can put food on the children's table. That's not my contention. My contention is at a population level, if we're going to have an examination of things at the population, which 
at the population level, which, by the way, is exactly what government is. Right. It, it, let's 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 remove every libertarian. Let's remove the libertarian critique of that the government is a that the government is is the monopoly on force within a given society. That it's an institu- institution of theft. That it's an institution of violence. Let's just take the statist example, the standard default Republican Democrat example. What is the government supposed to do? The government is supposed to take care of their population. By definition, we are doing things, we are examining things at a population level. And so at that level, yeah, no, I don't support welfare. I don't support wealth transfers. I don't think that it's a good mechanism for distributing aid. This would go for foreign aid as well. This is not a good mechanism for making sure money gets into the hands of people, money or whatever resource you'd prefer get into the hands of people who need to. However, I understand why people take it. And this is where my changing perspective has come, is that in the world in which we are getting stimmy checks, I'll take my stimmy check and I'll buy myself a nice computer with it. I'm not going to personally, and I respect people who would do this, but I'm personally not going to turn away you know, over $1,000 for nothing when everybody else is getting it. In fact, I'm going to invest it in something that I can use to make, uh, you know, to make something better for me in the future or just get something nice because I want it. So like I said, this is where principle meets application and I don't see anything wrong with taking advantage of the fact that people are, that the government is giving out money and, and taking it. I just don't. I mean, I think, I think in the long run, I'm more interested in helping the people who want to get ahead, get ahead and make themselves a better person. So that's, that's like, so I don't know. So just kind of my changing perspective on that. Um, It's also one of the reasons why I haven't changed my opinion on UBI. UBI would be absolutely horrible to implement on the, on a, at a population level because it's going to idle millions of workers overnight. And when you idle millions of workers, you create cultures of dependency that rely on more and more handouts. It's not even a slippery slope. It's if you ask, if you, you know, if, if you give a mouse a cookie, he'll ask for a glass of milk, right? It, it, nothing will ever be enough for somebody who's willing to take everything that you give to them. So the next quote that I have pulled up here says, the great universities of this country have conducted studies over the last 10 years. It shows that adding two years of universal high-quality preschool for every three-year-old and four-year-old, no matter what background they come from, it puts them in a position to be able to compete all the way through 12 years. That's actually really interesting. It puts them in a position to be able to compete all the way through 12 years. Doesn't say their lifetime, does it? We'll come back to that in a second. It increases exponentially their prospect of graduating and going on beyond graduation. The research shows that when a young child goes to school, not daycare, they are far more likely to graduate from high school and go to a college or something after high school. When you add two years of free community college on top of that, you begin to change the dynamic. We can do that. So basically, if there's one thing, well, so let me read what I said and then we'll kind of circle back. If there's one thing I understand in my bones, it is that the current schooling system does not need to be reformed. It needs to be left in the waste bin of history. Notice, by the way, how I repurpose their framing technique. Of course, the government's job in education isn't to make you better. It's to make you theirs. 
By controlling the narrative and controlling the institution that schools the young, they can maintain their grip on power. Make no mistake, that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about making the educational system better when Joe Biden speaks like this. We're talking about making the educational system work for the people in power. Here's the cool thing, though. While this is happening, those of us outside of their influence will be building our own institutions that could present information to you in a better way. It's how I learned so much about economics and philosophy and what I endeavored to do for you on the pages of beenawake.com. And what I mean by that is that in many respects, these people have already lost their grip on power because institutions and outlets like mine and others exist. And not that I'm in some special camp of people. There's a million people out there doing better than me. But I certainly do offer a particular insight into the way these things are used. Now, what I'm driving at is the fact that once we realize that we don't have to operate within their system, we almost by default completely exit the system. And then it's just a question of will. It's a question of how much are you willing to put yourself outside of their sphere of influence. As it stands right now, it's not difficult to do. It just takes a little bit of work. And, you know, it makes you maybe a little less in the know at a party. But let me trace back to that little thing that's in there. It's a little throwaway line. And it's one of the reasons why they can tell something that's, what is it that Malice says? That the, uh, that the corporate press is truthful but not accurate or accurate but not truthful. And this, these kinds of studies that are done by the great, that are done by the great universities fill, fall victim to this. And let's, let's move to another part of government policy that they tried 30 years ago, which was the housing market. Because see, there was, there's also, you can also look up the movie, the documentary Poverty Inc. for this as well, because they talk about the backwards reasoning that, that, that affects the current uh, foreign aid system that we have right now, which is, again, still a form of welfare. It's a wealth transfer to other nations so that they can be better, just like us in the United States of America. But of course, what the government does is misdiagnose and therefore offer the incorrect solutions because the correct solutions don't fall within their purview. What is their purview? Well, government is the monopoly on force within a society. They're the people allowed to engage in violence, legally speaking. All they can do is take from you, put you in prison, or kill you. Those are the only, uh, all government actions reduced to the, one of those three things. Welfare? Well, welfare only exists because it takes from other people. It imprisons you in a, and it also imprisons you in a system. We have, a, we have, you know, there's a virus going around. Everybody should just stay in their home, effectively turn people into a prison, into a prisoner. And it's only hyperbolic if you want it to be. It's just, I think I, I look at it as a very apt observation of government policy. So that's one of the reasons why they look at things almost backwards. And so what, so where, where am I going with this? Well, see, back 30 years ago, what they said was, well, how do we know what, what, what are the characteristics that somebody who's graduating college has? And they said, and, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, people who graduate college and you're talking to somebody who did not graduate college, by the way. Spent a lot of time in it, but it didn't, whatever. That's a story for another day. <laughs> 
but what do people who graduate college have? And there was a lot of things that they had. But one thing that everybody said was like, oh, well, there is a correlation between people who rent and people who own homes. And if you own a home, you're more likely to have children that graduate from college. And so they said, well, what we have to do is make sure that everybody can own a home. What they miss, and that's, that's this materialist idea, frankly. And it's this idea that, well, the things that you have are the reason you are the way you are and not who you are determines the types of things you have. Because another thing that you, would, you could probably point out with, good, with, with a high degree of certainty is that people who, have, who grow up in intact homes are more likely to graduate from high school and college. Right, the number, the three, the three measures of success that every conservative likes to talk about ad nauseum is like, you know, don't have kids outside of marriage, graduate high school, and get a job. I don't even remember what the third one is. Don't have kids outside of wedlock. Make sure you graduate high school, and like one other thing, and you're more likely to make more money in your life. But we have government programs that you know. That, that incentivize single motherhood. We also have government programs that incentivize home ownership. And then what did we see? We saw a housing collapse. It's the same thing with these educational models. What we keep saying is that, okay, well, as long as we just put more people into our meat grinder of lessons and knowledge that we think is the best type of knowledge, even though it's a model that's over 100 years old, the model that we use for schooling is over 100 years old and is completely outmoded, was, was perhaps outmoded for an industrial age, and now that we are in the post-industrial age, is even more so. See, this is where we might run into, this is where I reflect on the differences between Plato and Aristotle. Plato had this, or idealism and realism would be another way of putting it out and why there's pluses and negatives to both. And it's one of the interesting things I think about humanity is that you can find both of those pluses and negatives in both of them. The educational system will change. It is changing. It has changed. The way you learn is only limited by institutions because you believe it is. And because they tell you that they're the only ones who can give you knowledge. Whereas there are plenty of us out there in the world who understand that these are lies and are just really all that, all that what, what doesn't exist right now is the accreditation. So let's talk about some of the scarier stuff. And, and we're going to get into this idea a little bit more, by the way, in, another, in the, one of the pieces that I wrote this week, which is called the Zenith of Enlightenment. With regards to Russia, quoting from Joan Biden, I know it concerns some of you, but I made very clear to Putin that we're not going to seek esca, 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 excuse me, escalation, but their actions will have consequences if they turn out to be true. And they turned out to be true, so I responded directly and proportionally to the Russians' interference in our election and cyber attacks on our government and our businesses. So, the, the, so this, is, this is one of the things that will cause these people to collapse eventually, is that they are going to insist on the Russiagate lie. They are going to insist on the lie of gun violence in America. And they are going to insist on the lie of white supremacy. 
and he has quotes for the gun violence. I need not, I need, I need not tell anyone this, but gun violence is becoming an epidemic. So see, we all, we've already, we're already primed to understand that government is there to take care of an epidemic because we just did that with the, with the COVID-19 pandemic and the COVID-19 pandemic started out as an epidemic. So now we can call gun violence a health object and we can implement the same kinds of controls. And for the vast herd of Americans who have been raised, bred, and born to serve the government, if you will, I know this is, I know this is a stretch for some people listening, but the people bred, born, and raised to serve the government's interest because people will do what they are told for the most part, they are already ready for it. Okay, Joe Biden says we need to take care of guns. Guns are like an epidemic. Well, we just did this. So what we need to do is get rid of the problem. And he has another, and this is again taking, this is hijacking the natural part, part of your brain, which says I need to listen to people who are in positions of authority over me because that is how I survive. And he says, we won't ignore what our intelligence agencies have determined to be the most lethal terrorist threat to the homeland today. White supremacy is terrorism. We're not going to ignore that either. So they're going to continue to push the woke narrative that white supremacy is what people need to fear in the current day. So other and but here's what you should be doing. Other than making sure you're subscribed to this newsletter, you should be finding your herd and building your community. I'm trying to do that in a small way here and in other endeavors. There's plenty of money. This is what I like to say. There's plenty of money to be made between now and the end of America as we know it. And that end is only going to come once. So be happy and know that you can succeed. You can succeed even in a world with government autocracy. It doesn't matter what you want to call our current order. Some people would say it's authoritarianism. Some people would say it's tyrannical. There's, an, there's a concept of anarcho-tyranny that floats around out there that might be worth our, our exploration on another day in time. It doesn't matter in a sense because a lot of these things are outside of our control. And, you know, there's some of us who are like organizing right now within the country, within the, within the, uh, the Libertarian Party to try and make a difference. But I, I do believe that freedom begins within yourself and that in that you can reflect that and in that you can understand the consequences of what you believe, you can create your own reality in a sense. I do believe that because, you know, and <laughs> as I like to say, if, Epi if Epictetus can find freedom as a slave and Epictetus was a great stoic philosopher, if Epictetus can find freedom in being a slave, we can find freedom in 21st century America. So be happy. That's, it's an important thing. And I've, I've talked about that before, and I hope, I hope that comes through in my writing. So I really, I only wrote two pieces. I did two content recommendations this week. So we're going to go through those quickly. Not quickly. We're going to go through those right quick. And then we're going to end today's show on the zenith of enlightenment. You know, it's interesting because as I'm recording this on Saturday, there's some Liberty beef right now. And I'm, sometimes I feel like I should comment on things like that. And then I take solace in the fact that I can produce this very interesting, dense show that talks about important ideas 
in a um, in a very system, uh, system systematic way. But maybe I should add something that's a little more punchy. You let me know. Let me know what you think about that. So we all suffer from confirmation bias, and even a good skeptic like your humble author does. But given where we are in the simulation, it's worth revisiting what could have been done better. If, there's, if you are a victim of government education, as so many of us are, it's difficult to accept the idea that there can be multiple authorities on a specific subject. It is also a difficult thing to accept that the person presented to you by the press as an expert might not be as they claim. Even amidst the faceless adherence to COVID hysteria, I do believe you can choose to be free. We were just talking about this idea. And so the, co- so the piece of content that I would recommend is listening to Dr. Dave Bhattacharya, who I've had, who I've had in other interviews on the Tom Woods show. Uh, we're going to just play a little segment of it here that talks a little bit about the funding for these sorts of processes. Almost all of my work in the past has been funded by the National Institute of Health, in particular the National Institute of Aging. And I mean, I, I think it's a great institution. It has the capacity to enable many, many scientists to do work that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. I think it's, it's a hugely good investment, but just like anything, even good things, it has costs. I think we've started seeing that in this epidemic, right? So the head of the NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, is Anthony Fauci. The head of an agency like that wields enormous power over the agenda of the agency. And many, many, many infectious disease doctors and, and researchers, very top people in the field, rely on those NIAID grants. I didn't actually tend to rely on an NIAID grant. Most of my work is in aging, so it was it's the National Institute of Aging, which generally has been freer about this, so it has a much less heavy hand than NIAID. And I think that, I mean, I, in the back of my head, I haven't seen this like documented, so I don't, maybe it's not right, but in the back of my head, I've had the sense that like, maybe now we should view NIAID funding as a conflict of interest that needs to be you know, sort of taken into account when you're reading you know, the opinions about lockdown for someone about that, with that background. Can you think of any other episode in, let's say, your lifetime involving health in which there were, in effect, two distinct sides that vilified each other, that it wasn't just a matter of, I've reached this conclusion, you've reached that conclusion, let's go back and re-examine it, but it really became a vilification campaign and people were afraid to speak out, or is this something new? I mean, Martin Kuldor says this is the end of the Age of Enlightenment, 300 years, right? The Age of Enlightenment started with this vilification episode of Galileo, right? It's, it's or is that 300 years ago? I, should know my history better. In any case, I think that we kind of had developed norms where you could have disagreements within science without this kind of vilification. I mean, I think you've seen some episodes like this with, you know, in the Soviet Union with uh, Lysenko and, and uh, Darwinian evolution, the vilification of Darwinianists, uh, or uh, more recently in the U.S. And, and elsewhere about any dissent over climate change science. So I think it's not like unprecedented in history, but certainly, I mean, I've never seen it in my own work. I mean, it's never... The field I've been in has, has been characterized by lots of disagreements, health economics, and it's, I think, really healthy to have those disagreements. A healthy field has these kinds of disagreements followed by, you know, sort of good empirical work to try to decide which views are right, and then you move on to the next thing. I think that this is, the problem here is that this particular scientific disagreement has affected every single person on the face of the earth negatively and made it impossible close to impossible, to have a rational discussion so we can decide whether we're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And as a result, we just follow this policy, this lockdown, most of the world, has followed this lockdown policy without actually having had a, had a chance to, uh, to have the debate that would have helped us realize whether it was a good or a bad thing. And that was, again, part of the reason for the Great Barrington Declaration was to really just to restart this debate. Because if, if I'm honest, I don't think there's anything new in the Great Barrington Declaration. It's a restatement of the old, old pandemic plans. I'd highly encourage you, if you haven't already, to check out the Great Barrington Declaration. It's, um, 
it's just proof that there are plenty of experts who disagreed with the lockdown method that has completely destroyed the lives of millions of people and still leaves millions out of work today for, for various reasons. And the worst part is, <laughs> the worst part about the lockdown method is that people will continue to justify it if for no other reason then we have confirmation bias. Note the thing that I started the entire article with, and I talked about my own confirmation bias. But if I'm right, and I am, this will continue, this lockdown method will continue and will continue for other things if for no other reason than we have to make something worth it and nobody wants to admit that they're wrong about anything. So, of course, we had to lock down. There was no other option. Anybody that you point to is a quack when that isn't the case. But given that I'm trying to talk about perception and consciousness and, and where we are and how can we build and become better, you know, when I was listening to that segment of the conversation again, I was thinking about you know the enlightenment and there's a lot of talk about the promise of the enlightenment lately uh, i wrote about it this week i wrote about the zenith of the enlightenment there are thinkers out there who are rejecting the enlightenment there are people out there who claim to be the the descendants of it that i wouldn't that that, that in fact might well be even though they don't have the best interests of humanity in mind but what I was thinking when I was listening to that is how much easier it is to, well, I've, I've had this idea. I, you know, it's funny. I realized I have, a list of, I have a list of articles that I need to write, a list of ideas that I want to try to flesh out and write about various, uh, about various concepts. And one, I've actually, I think I've talked about it on the show or maybe in an interview I, di- I gave. Um, and I've also, I also put it on Twitter. And so because of that, I haven't actually written it out. But there's something, there's, there's, there's something to this idea of the more complex something is, the easier it can be taken advantage of. The more complex a system, the easier it is to operate as a parasite or to ha- hijack it altogether. And that's, that's one of the things we are living under in the information age. So... If you are a generally able-bodied person, it's very easy for you to just get up and walk somewhere. It might be harder for you to walk hundreds of miles, but that's why you have a car. And that, but that car is far more complex. And if everything isn't working properly within that car, then you're not going to get to where you need to go. I think our brains are somewhat like that as well. And you saw just how that complexity can be hijacked in the comments from Dr. Bhattacharya. And his comments of saying that um, that these debates used to happen within his field. <coughs> Excuse me. That these debates used to happen within his field, but now they don't seem to be. And in his field, in fact, they they used to be able to handle these debates uh, well. <coughs> Excuse me. So we're going to jump to. Um, well, first we're going to pause.
So one of the things that <clears throat> one of the things I've always been accused of by people is that I like to go too deep. And of course, I, I uh, if anything, this show is an out is a outgrowth of that. So I think it's worth pondering as we sit here what it means to be like conscious. Like what? <laughs> like what are you really? Like who am I really? So I've talked about how we can't really wait to actually have final answers to things, which is why we need to operate within the world. So what we have to do is kind of figure out how we're going to do that. But I do think it's worth considering these big questions. Who are we? Where do we come from? What are you? What is a human being? What does it mean to be conscious? And a friend forwarded me this video, this other video that I recommended you all check out this week by Professor Daniel Dennett at the 2013 World Minds Conference that brought together scientists and philosophers to discuss the phenomena of consciousness. He takes a very materialist view in my eyes and spends a great deal of time trying to dissuade the use of a Cartesian conception of dualism. If you've listened to my work, you'll understand that I am fascinated with the idea of identity and arguably whatever an identity is, it comes from and is a manifestation of consciousness per se. I think it's likely to assume that our our identities, while not entirely, of, uh, while not entirely our consciousness, are a product of us having consciousness. Does that make sense? Because if we didn't have a conscious self, we wouldn't need to have an identity, as such. Right? A tiger doesn't care that it's a tiger, as far as we know. A tiger doesn't care that it's a tiger. A tiger only cares whether somebody's in its territory, whether it can kill for its meal, so on and so forth. If So will there ever be final answers for a study like identity and consciousness? I don't think so. But I do salute and respect greatly minds like Dr. Daniel Dennett who are actively working out the problem. I think in many respects, that's what we are always supposed to do is work and figure out these problems. That's kind of, our, our brains are problem-solving machines almost by definition. So we're just going to play a little bit of a segment from it. Again, this isn't, this isn't really my, this wouldn't be my conceptualism of things. And what he's, what he's particularly taking, trying to take apart in this video, and it's really worth you sitting down and listening to, I would highly, highly recommend it, is what many of us, would use, which is this cart, which was particularly put forth in Descartes' conception of the mind. And so Descartes' conception of the mind was a, was a, was a dualism, as, as we kind of alluded to here, and it's called a Cartesian dualism. And so we had this, we have this body, and we also have a mind, and these things are two separate entities. And that is what Dr. Dennett is taking exception to with it within his entire lecture and arguably his work, because as he'll kind of talk about it, basically like, you know, it kind of requires this thing inside of you to also then transmute the information to your brain. Right. So it's just like he talks about, like, he'll talk about the homunculus and a homunculus is a perfectly formed little human. Uh, you know, so like there's this little man inside of your mind and that man is going to take all the inputs of your brains and your senses and he's going to turn it into a narrative structure. And of course, we do this. This is we're literally talking about our consciousness, who we are as people. So let's let's listen to what he has to say. Each of us represents our world to ourselves in that special inner theater. That's that's just a bad idea. 
That's the Cartesian interface. All the work has to be done, and it's done somehow. We're just making progress on it every year with neural spike trains, all the way in and all the way out to the muscle contractions and actions. What lies in the middle is not a pearl of immaterial, immortal soul. It's what we might call a virtual self. It's a self made of information. It's a data structure which can handle information. I've called it the center of narrative gravity, which is a useful term because you know the center of gravity of an object, uh, the center of gravity of this object here is, is fairly high. I could easily tip this over. It's a point, it's not physically arbitrary, but it's not, a, it's not an atom, it's not a thing. It's, a, it's an abstraction, it's like the equator. It's an abstraction. That yourself is the center of narrative gravity. It's an abstraction. It's, if you like, a user illusion. But a very important one and a very useful one. It's made of information. Now, is this a good idea? Well, so <clears throat> I don't know. This isn't my particular area of study. Uh, as it relates to philosophy per se, um, you know, identity would be more, would be a few steps downward of consciousness. What I found interesting, because he spends some time in this video kind of taking on his biggest attractor, is, well, this is what I like to do. And I'm sure, and this is what upsets, I think, this is what, what, what some people would find upsetting about my thought is, Okay, so what really is the difference between the Cartesian dualism and of having a virtual self? There are some, by the way, and I wouldn't pretend to know enough of, of Dr. Dennett's work to really, to really make sense of that. But a fascinating conversation. Again, it's really worth just sitting back and kind of taking in these sorts of things if you want to listen to how we are tackling the biggest questions of today. And, you know, this, this is what I do believe. This is what religion and philosophy has tried to do and what science tries to do continually throughout the ethos of human spirit, throughout the ethos of humanity, or the, uh, throughout, the entire, uh, throughout the entire history of humanity would probably be the best way of putting that. And that's why we're going to end today on my piece, The Zenith of Enlightenment which I got nice feedback from, which I am always appreciative of. Make sure you give me that feedback by subscribing at beenawake.com slash subscribe. I'm offering 50% off forever for anybody who, who takes advantage of that deal between who, who, who gives me their hard-earned dollars between now and I believe it's September 9th, which is the anniversary of the first post on this, uh, on the Substack on the space. So it would, it would really, I would, be very appreciative of it. It's how we're going to grow the show <clears throat> and how we're going to create a community of people who want to engage with ideas seriously. Because that's maybe that in a nutshell is all I've ever wanted in life. So you've definitely had the following experience and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of describe this for you. I should check the time. So I'm going to unlock my phone. And then I'm going to open up my favorite social platform because I kind of just have that muscle memory. I'm going to just scroll, scroll, scroll. Shoot. What was I supposed to do? Locks phone. Oh, yeah. I wanted to check the time. Unlocks phone. Scrolls. Doesn't ever check the time. I've, I've done this a hundred times. I'm sure you have done something similar as well. 
In my recent interview with Nick Ashley of the Individualist Podcast, and I have the link to that, uh, you can go check that out. It's another hour of content that I produced. We danced around the promise of the Enlightenment. In short, the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution promised a world freed from the baser instincts of mankind. In this world, reason would rule the day, and there was no need for emotion, kings, or even God in this new world. When I was taught about the Enlightenment through philosophers like Immanuel Kant and others, there was a clear delineation made between two basic drives inside of a human, instinct and reason. As stated, the thinking was generally, the more we remove instinct, we will find greater reason in humanity and in society. Given that I have the benefit of a couple hundred years of subsequent thought, I can point out the shortcomings of enlightenment thought. I argued on Nick's show that we, in many respects, have reached the zenith of the promise of more information available to the most people. If you are reading this, surely you can understand the amount of media that is out there for you to consume on a daily basis. One thing that the Enlightenment, that I think Enlightenment thinkers miss, was how humans actually want to process information. There have been studies done that say humans in general will rationalize backwards from an emotional conclusion and pretend they came to it as a matter of pure reason. Personally, I don't think this element of our individually can be properly categorized under the instinctual level. Most of that realm is by definition subconscious. Where the great minds of the Enlightenment would posit there is reason, reason instinct. Well, let me try that again. I kind of butchered that. Where the great minds of the Enlightenment would posit there is reason and instinct at the basis, at the basis of humanity, I would argue there is reason, instinct, and faith. I know that this goes very contrary to what most of you would consider good philosophy or good scientists. Hang in there with me, materialists. Let's see if I can help you understand my position. Instinct is our animal nature. It contains years, hundreds of thousands of years, uh, hundreds and thousands of years of pre-programmed evolutionary experience. It sits as the base code in our brains, if you will, maintaining our complex systems and operating the various chemicals that make up our essence, our soul, spirit, what have you. It also contains our emotions, all of them. While our instinctual level can be managed by our higher faculties, it can exert full control in obvious instances. Fight or flight is a very good example of this. Reason. For many philosophers, reason is what makes humanity more than a mere animal existing on the earth. Reason is the basis for our intelligence, our capacity to problem solve, ability to do math, and understand abstract concepts like philosophy or mathematics. And, these, and those fields rely heavily on our faculties of reason, as people would call it. As many great minds said, reason is also the written word, the ability we have as humans to transmit information across generations without loss. While certain behaviors are instinctual, the norms we call culture are influenced at the level of reason, I believe. So our genetics are handled at the instinctual level, if you will, and, uh, and, 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 and culture is handled at the level of reason. 
put another way, right? This is nature versus nurture. And reason is almost by definition that nurturing, that nurturing element. I think. I could be wrong about that. If you, if you think I'm wrong, let's, let's talk about this because this is something that I'm putting out into the world in the hopes that it helps others because it's helped me. As a skeptic, now, we're, now, so now, now let's move on to faith. And reason is, again, highly important, highly, highly functional, highly useful, right? Our ability to problem solve, like I said, our brains are problem solving machines. So this isn't, this isn't to denigrate. So this is, this is part of it, right? So under the enlightenment conception of things, they often wanted to denigrate instinct and elevate reason. And what I'm trying to do here is create this trinity that in which there isn't necessarily one force that is 100% better than every other force. It's, it's one in three. All of these things operate equally simultaneously, if you will, in the course of a human's life. So as a skeptic, I'm not sure we'll ever find the absolute or objective truth with a capital T of the cosmos. This leaves us in something, and, and many people would disagree with that. This leaves us in something of a predicament. When we want to explore this world, we find ourselves in, and, even, and, and find us even more of a predicament when we want to understand and teach what the world is. This is where I think faith plays a far greater role than most of the broader secular culture would care to admit. Theologians would say that faith is taking something for granted that you can't prove empirically. That's one definition of it. I would argue that this is how humans have accomplished anything worth knowing. If we as humans were caught in an anxious cycle of doubt, we may never have discovered the world. There was a time where humans were found only on one continent. Today, we are the only complex organism to exist in every hospitable climate and even some climates that are not hospitable at all. Part of the skeptical frame of mind, inquiry before dogma, is understanding that no matter how solid and foolproof a particular idea or concept is, it could be made better or it could be completely wrong. Let me rephrase that because I don't think I put it well when I wrote it. Part of the skeptical frame of mind is understanding that no matter how solid or, and foolproof a particular, a particular idea or concept seems, it could be made better or could be completely wrong. How then are we to take that first step from concept to action? In a word, I think we do that through faith. I think, if you will, it is the intermediator between what we would call instinct and reason. It comprises elements of both and yet remains its own thing. There is always more to say, but I have used, <clears throat> I have used this as my operating framework for many years and it has informed my worldview a great deal. Today, at the Zenith, the question isn't bringing information to the vast majority of humanity, but it's how to interpret the raw data. The spiritual guru and materialist scientist both miss something. This is why I think philosophy is not only abstract, but practical. There is the application as well as the theoretical. Asking the right question can lead you to a better answer than you ever thought possible. But if we keep asking the same question, we will never move forward. This is the line I endeavor to walk, and I thank you for joining me so far. 
and re and I and if you click on there's always more to say, you'll go back to a post for new people where I just talk about the fact that nothing that I say should be considered final. There's always room for adaptation and growth. And you know, there are some things that I will defend. I'll defend stronger than others, but I'm always trying to, I always try to add that in when I'm presenting, like, because part of, part of this newsletter format is that I don't explore things the way you would inside of a book, because otherwise it wouldn't be readable. What I'm doing wouldn't be readable if it was, if it was as dense as a book. So when I say there is always more to say, just know that's like a little pin that says, Hey, I'm probably going to address this at another time or Hey, there. There are more arguments that I could make, but I chose not to for the sake of a length. This is just a taste of what is to come. No matter how solid and how foolproof a particular idea or concept is, it could be made better. It could be completely wrong. And that's why we need faith as the intermediary between instinct and reason to be, in a word, human. like what you heard today, go to beenawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.